This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the Faculty Innovation Center of the University of Texas at Austin. Are the two of you always the interviewers? No, we mix up the host. I just got the two best ones. <laughs> no, trust me, we were fighting over who gets to interview. There was a bit of a fight over who yeah. got to host, mm-hmm. host you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I won the arm wrestle contest. Mm-hmm. Of course you did. Yeah. <laughs> and then I pulled my cut Stephanie Holmstead. That, I mean, let me tell you, I trained for weeks, Tasha, just so that I could win. It was worth it. as people shapes who we are as teachers about how our lived experience informs our teaching uh, we can be flexible and adapt and change this you're, you're free to do that we don't have to have it perfect we are about getting folks together from all walks of teaching life the key phrase you, you suggest there is it, it has to be done collectively we have so much to learn from the other side of campus <laughs> From the University of Texas at Austin, this is The Other Side of Campus. Hi, I'm Dixie Stanford, the Professor of Instruction in the Department of Kinesiology and Health Education. And I'm Jen Moon, an Associate Professor of Instruction in the College of Natural Sciences. I am delighted to introduce our guest today, our friend and colleague, Tasha Barethis. Tasha is a professor in the Quantitative Methods Program in the Department of Educational Psychology. She joined UT's faculty in 2000 and has served as the Quantitative Methods Program Chair and the College of Education's Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. She is currently the Senior Vice Provost for Faculty Affairs. Tasha is also a member of the Board of Directors for the Meadows Center for Preventing Educational Risk and a faculty associate of UT's Population Research Center. Dr. Brettvest teaches undergraduate and graduate statistics courses in the College of Education and has been a recipient of several teaching awards. Dr. Brettvest received her bachelor's degree in mathematics and psychology from Duke University, and then she worked at IBM before attending the University of Washington in Seattle, where she earned a master's and a doctoral degree in 2000 from the educational psychology department, specializing in measurement, statistics, and research design. Welcome, Tasha. We're so happy you're with us today. If I could do a drum roll here. And I never had any idea how hard it was to say quantitative that many times in a row. <laughs> just, try, just try saying statistics. Oh my goodness. Well, we'll yeah. see how we do here because I've known you for years through the College of Education where you are a superstar stats teacher. It's amazing that you can make meta-analysis, fun and exciting. So what makes you passionate about teaching? What keeps you going after all these years? I definitely do love teaching. I guess I haven't thought too deeply about why I love it. I know that it was the primary reason that I wanted to become a professor. I was a lot more nervous about the coming up with the never-ending research that you have to do to get tenure and so on. Mm But teaching was just something I love to do. I don't think of myself as an extrovert, but I definitely am energized by sharing what we know and have learned. And I am very motivated by teaching something that most people don't wanna learn. So I teach social scientists largely, teach them statistics and it's something that they have to learn. And so they come in with these very low expectations about 
what the experience will be like. So I benefit from their low expectations because when they don't hate it, they think I must be an astounding teacher. But the reality is statistics is not, it's part math, it's part language, it's part concepts. It's not as difficult, I don't think. And so I relish trying to convey that to people and seeing the learning. It's so funny you said that, Tasha, because I was thinking about when I first started teaching, I taught plant biology and I had the same thought. It's like for the students, the bar is so low that when you actually talk about your topic and it turns out to be really great, they're like amazed. <laughs> like, yeah. It actually and is cool. <laughs> yeah. So whereas something like psychology, which people come in, or at least I did thinking, oh, this is fascinating. A teacher has a much harder job, I think, convincing them that they're a good teacher because they already love the topic. So I think there's a little bias. <laughs> well, I think you're being too hard on yourself there because I've heard nothing but exceptional things about your ability to get students excited about learning what is a tough topic to think about learning. You've done that well in every class you've taught. And so we're really thankful that we get to learn from you today. So one thing I want to bring up here. So recently you've taken a position as senior vice provost for faculty affairs. And I don't know how recent that's been a couple of years at least, right? It's a year and a half. Year and a half. Okay. So recent-ish. And that is a huge shift from teaching meta-analysis, I would think. So tell us a little bit about how that happened. Was this a planned move or was it an unexpected sort of serendipitous event? I think there was a lot of serendipity to this move. So it was definitely not planned. I don't think of myself as a great leader, manager, visionary. I like numbers. I like statistics. I like playing in areas where there. this is part of why I love teaching statistics. So going back to that part of it is, to a large extent, there are formulas. There are things that are right and wrong. And so it's very straightforward to me to teach something that there are some pretty yes, no kinds of ways of doing things and making inferences. Mm -hmm. So for me to become an administrator is very uncomfortable because as an administrator, there are lots of maybes, perhaps gray areas. However, I also can be bossy, maybe. <laughs> so I might have opinions that I like to share and insert myself. I'm also impatient, so I like to get things done. And I think efficiency is punished by moving you up the administrative food chain. I think the way that this happened is I teach in a largely graduate program. So I've always been, as an associate dean for research and graduate studies, I've been I was heavily involved in or I felt like I was in graduate student support and graduate student development. But also because I was associate dean for research and graduate studies, I was also heavily involved around research, which has a lot to do also, not just graduate students, but with faculty. So I always have these two administrative loves, which sounds like an oxymoron, administrative love, <laughs> faculty and graduate students. So those were always directions I thought I might, paths I might take, in terms of administration. In one role I had, I served on the Gender Equity Council because of my statistics expertise, did a lot of analyses and worked really closely with Janet Dukrich. Janet Dukrich is my predecessor in this role, in my SVP role. So I greatly enjoyed working with Janet. I saw some things that she was doing that aligned with what I wanted 
to do and was motivated by in terms of faculty. And so when this position opened up, I thought, ah, throw my hat in the ring. And it turns out no one else applied. (laughs) So here I am. But it's definitely a growth opportunity for me. What a cool story. That is a cool story. I love, I'm always interested in how people got where they were because it always happens to be like, you're sort of following your nose with something. It's not Mm -hmm. like I had my sights on SVP from the time I started in 2000, you know, like it's all like, well, I was doing this and I work in these people that I really enjoyed working with. And that kind of led to, I think that's, that's really cool. And I got to say, there was a great rejoicing. Yes. Because if Janet couldn't be in that position and wanted to move on to other stuff, I could think of no better person to take over the reins. So I'm, we're all just delighted. Absolutely. I'm getting verklempt and I shouldn't get verklempt on podcasts. Oh, verklempt is fantastically welcomed. (laughs) I also, I think everyone should recognize that there's lots of imposter syndrome running around. And so when I talk about my yes, no versus maybe, I'm constantly living in an uncomfortable space, but that's where we grow. Yeah, that's cool. Would you say that's probably been your the biggest growth area for you, Tasha? Oh, yes. So number one, I am somewhat of a people pleaser. And if you're an administrator, you're not going to please everyone. Mm-hmm. So that's one area of growth. And as an administrator and leader, you have to learn how to say no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are plenty of scenarios where you say no and it's fine, but there's, there's other scenarios where you have to say no and you don't want to. And so trying to handle that. Yeah. And then also there's decisions to be made where you don't know what to do when you have no experience in knowing. So you have to lean on your resources, including people like you, Dixie, and you, Jen, and and many other people to try and help. But ultimately, you might have to be the decider and you'll always second guess. It's part of life. But yeah, so again, it's this unease with uncertainty that increasingly happens as you go up the food. I don't know if it's a food chain and I don't like to think of it as a hierarchy, but it somewhat is. Yeah. And it's a really important thing to mention too, because I think there's this, there's this always a sense when you're working in a hierarchical system that the people in certain positions, well, they must be immune to feeling Mm -hmm. conflicted or struggling with because the of course the professional presence and what we see on the from that angle is the decision has been made and here's how we're going to do it and that's the end and so it's very easy I think for people to get feel jaded about administrative positions because they don't recognize that these are people and they're the same people they were before it you know and they still struggle with all of the turmoil and agonizing over decisions that have to be made and where it has to come down. And so it's very refreshing to kind of actually talk about that. And we, we talk about that with teaching as well. You know, we talk a lot about the grad school experience and how it's not like we were super, super bright and everything came easily. And we just walk through our PhD program without any sort of, you know, conflict. So I think it's really nice to kind of share these things and say, yeah, we're all human. We all go through this. It doesn't disappear with a title. I think it's very refreshing. <laughs> And that there's potential for growth because, yeah. you know, we've all been focused in the since last March on being willing to model that for our students that, you know, we we talk a lot about modeling growth and yet we usually show up for our classes with a finished product yeah. and they don't get to see all the mess and the, the ick that maybe went right. into developing that wonderful end product. And yet that's so valuable for them to see. So we do appreciate your willingness to share that, Tasha. So switching gears a little bit 
and, and coming back to something that you had just mentioned earlier, you've been so incredibly supportive of our professional faculty, our non-tenure track faculty. And I'm curious about how have you seen the role of non-tenure track faculty develop and change in the time you've been at UT? I think it's a really great question. And I'm going to admit something because you both make me so vulnerable. Uh, feel vulnerable. <laughs> so I think as someone who from grad school was just pigeonholed into you're going to go and be on the tenure track. So I came here and I was on the tenure track and then I was tenured and then I was tenured full and then I was an associate dean. I don't think that I encountered or had too many thoughts about anyone who chose a different path. So our professional faculty, my program for a long time in my actual program, quantitative methods, Dixon, um, didn't (laughs) didn't have, had very few, if any, professional faculty. So the reason I'm saying that is I feel like I'm probably a very typical tenure track, tenured faculty member who just Mm -hmm. didn't think about professional faculty. When I became associate dean, in the College of Ed, that's when you start to see more broadly who the campus community includes. And it's not just tenured tenure track faculty. Obviously, there's a lot of work to be done and there's all types of faculty. And that so that's when I first got more experience and exposure to the experience, the, the professional experiences of our professional faculty. And in my role now, and largely through connections with people like both of you, Dixie and Jen, and others across campus who are professional faculty, I think my own awareness is expanding and my own thoughts around what we can do has changed. So this, this, you asked about how I see their roles changing. I think I just hadn't really been aware until now. I think I'm hoping that there is a stronger sense across campus now of who our faculty are and how heterogeneous they are and that it's mm-hmm. not just the tenure tenure track. I see some colleges and schools who explicitly recognize that there's all sorts of faculty for whom we need to think about climate and community and other things. And that includes our professional faculty and they are making some places are making stronger efforts to cultivate the careers of our professional faculty and our others, our non-professional faculty. (laughs) 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 So I think we are not there yet. I think like I look at CNS and they have Jen Moon in a very explicit position caring for, along with other faculty in your college, caring for our professional faculty. There was the movement to change some of the titles to more helpfully recognize the different roles of our professional faculty. So we have professor of practice, we have clinical, and so on. We already had clinical, but and professor of instruction. So I think the culture is evolving. I see other colleges where there are uh, professional faculty and leadership positions, which is great. I think we just need to continue doing this work and recognize our faculty more broadly than we currently do and do a better job of thinking about climate, community, career cultivation. There's lots of C's around our professional faculty. 
including what do we want to call ourselves? Right, which is always the big thing, right? (laughs) Yeah, do you have any thoughts on that? It feels hierarchical and it feels difficult sometimes to even know what term to use. What are your thoughts on that? So I don't know that I should get to choose, (laughs) but I make a concerted effort not to say non-tenure track for obvious reasons. I have run ideas, I think, by at least you, Jen, and others around using professional faculty mm-hmm. or specialized faculty. Of course, that makes our tenured tenure track non-specialized <laughs> and non-professional. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, but that's not the implication. It's trying to focus on our, if I can use the term non-tenure track mm-hmm. with air quotes so you can't see me acting out, mm-hmm. our non-tenure track faculty do have more specific specializations than what our tenure tenure track are expected to have, right? We're supposed to be doing research, teaching, advising, service. And in the ways that we assess for promotion, our professional faculty, they have a couple of areas and that they, they frequently do have one primary area of specialization. So, so I don't know, I'm, I'm open. I don't know. I think the tenure tenure track faculty members shouldn't choose what other people should be called, but I don't think there will necessarily be easy agreement across all professional faculty. Yeah, for sure. Um, so what are your thoughts? What do you think? What you know, you and think? I don't think anyone's figured this out. You know, if you look mm-hmm. at other institutions as well, everybody sort of struggles with like career, mm-hmm. some career, say career. Yeah, like there's always going to be, because the thing is, I think we're a subset, non-tenure track are sort of a subset of a tenure track responsibilities. And just as we talked about the titles, you know, within non-tenure track, that's a hugely diverse group. It's not just people who teach, it's people who do research full-time, but are not on faculty. Performance, right. You know, so it's anything you come up with, it ends up being like a three-hour conference. They're faculty. I think the first step is just recognizing that we're all faculty. That's step number. (laughs) That sounds really easy, but but it's more challenging than than any of us. I've been guilty in my time of thinking that we're different. And I, I completely admit to that because I I was ignorant and I, I was well-schooled by many. And I think that's the first step is convincing people that we're all faculty and this place wouldn't move without all flavors of faculty. To get back to your point, you know, you were talking about not being aware of non-tenure track and their position and their roles and what they do at the university. But to be fair to you, I think there's been a really remarkable change over the past, let's say, 30, 40 years in that role. I mean, I think my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that 30 years ago, there were relatively few non-tenure track faculty and they were, yeah, Dixie being one of the, <laughs> the stars of that She's group. The first ever. That's right. The first ever non-tenure track. Last woman standing. <laughs> it could be, you will be. But just that they were pulled in, it was sort of like a expansion of an adjunct kind of position where, you know, we need someone to teach this class. So-and-so is on sabbatical or whatever. I know we don't sabbatical at UT, but mm-hmm. so it was kind of, that was the, the sense of what that group of faculty that was their role. And then over time, I think largely due to economics, there's been an expansion of the job responsibilities and expectations. And then lagging behind that was recognizing that it's not really a person that jumps in for a semester to teach a course. It's now someone who's building a career here mm-hmm. is teaching a full load of classes, three, three or four, four 
and wants to be here for 30 years and be involved in service and take administrative jobs as they come up, you know? So I think that whole progression of what we think of as non-tenure track 30 years ago to now has changed. So I think tenure track can be forgiven for not, for not really, because that's all been happening sort of behind the scenes to a large extent. And there's been a lot of progress because when I first came, I mean, I'm 35 years here, (laughs) hard to believe, non-tenure track or whatever we're going to call it. And, you know, back in the day, there were very clear distinctions and it was very hierarchical. And there, there wasn't any recognition, I don't think, early days of the value or the contributions. And that has shifted hugely. And I think in large part to faculty like you, Tasha, who are are now in administrative positions and you are supportive and you see the big picture and you understand the value. And so I, I think for us looking at it from, from the perspective of growth, that's really what's happened is, is we've evolved into really a much healthier environment, more of a community. I wonder along those lines, because Jen, are you the only associate dean for non-tenure track on campus? Assistant dean. Assistant and yeah. dean. Uh-huh. I am. I'm hoping, you know, working with Tasha's office, we can. Yeah. Tasha, do you see anything shifting in that direction? Do you see um, any other colleges moving towards something like that? Is that something that would have benefit? Just to clarify, there are assistant and associate deans who are non-tenured track professional Mm -hmm. faculty in other colleges, but they don't have the specific portfolio that Jen does, Mm -hmm. which I personally am a fan of. I have not yet heard of other colleges and schools following CNS's lead starting this coming semester. I have a provost faculty fellow, Amanda Hager, who is going to be continuing to expand what faculty affairs team at UT is doing in terms of, again, the C's. I, I need acronyms to help me think about things. So things like climate and culture and community criteria. So anything to do with supporting our professional faculty. So she's going to come in. And I think one of the first things we're going to do is some data gathering, including taking the temperature around the idea of what Jen is doing and what other places are doing to continue to build what we, we should and can do here. A short answer is no, I don't know that any other colleges and schools, I think the tension that I had heard when I tried to floating that idea around places was some professional faculty might make it seem like they are different. That's why we need our own assistant associate dean. Mm -hmm. And if we're trying to make it seem like one big community, pulling it separately might be counter to that. However, when movements start, sometimes you have to be explicit and say, we need this. Someday we won't. So for now, we're going to have a gen and we're going to focus so that one day we don't need to have a gen. No offense, but you know what I mean. We don't need to have that position because faculty affairs Uh means all our faculty. Yeah, we're inclusive. And and just as to support that, that was the same discussion that was happening in College of Natural Sciences before Mm -hmm. the position was made. It was like, does this make too strong a distinction? Does it feel like we don't get the proper associate dean of faculty affairs? We have, as non-tenure have to work with an assistant dean because Uh they've been 
Do you know what I mean? Like we've been sort of cordoned yeah. off. Right. And you're pulled separately. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right now it's separate. Yeah. It is separate right now. I mean, that's the goal is to recognize the differences, but also align as much as we can. And I think an argument, I mean, I think it's very similar in spirit to thinking about diversity committee or yeah. groups that are or groups that are associated with like people of color that are, you know, community building. I think it's the same kind of idea. Like we need to yeah. get some momentum and attention spent. And then hopefully the goal is always like, we just kind of all appreciate diversity. And hopefully organically, organically, that, that right. community yeah. building happens, you know, because that, if that happens, then things are really going to shift. But it does highlight some of the consistent tensions that we run into on campus, doesn't it? It seems that there, there are always going to be these tensions and this balancing of things. And one question to shift gears again a little bit, Tasha, is do you sense any of that tension or challenges related to your administrative position that are different than your teaching? How do you balance those two things? And do you have any insights for us or particularly for someone who might be listening, who's thinking, you know, I love teaching, but I think I'd be interested in administration as well. Do you have any thoughts? That's a very complicated question <laughs> for your, your yes, no person. So I'm 100% administrator, but again, I'm a professor because I love teaching. Mm -hmm. I love research too, it turns out, but I love teaching. So I did teach this last semester, uh -huh. if you can call what I did teaching. I think depending on your administrative role, it's important to keep teaching. And I think most administrative roles involve some thought around students as well as faculty so I think that there are ways to be able to still teach while being an administrator. It was very difficult because there were lots of things going on on campus, but I wanted to feel what it was like to teach online so that as I'm sitting upstairs, well, in my closet, thinking about faculty and how to support them, I'd have some sense of what they're experiencing to a very small extent. There are ways to make time to do all parts of your faculty job, even when you're administrator. And my other example is, I think Judy Langlois wanted to do research while she was interim provost. So she reserved a certain amount of time during each week when, no, she wouldn't have meetings. She would focus on her lab and her research. So I, I think it's a matter of doing what all faculty do anyway, which is reserving the time and making some compromises and saying, yes, I'm gonna teach this semester. So I'm taking six hours out of my week where you can't schedule meetings for me and I'll make up those six hours some, somewhere else. And the reality is all of us work much more than our actual number of hours. So it's just a, a question of priorities. So I don't know that that answered your question. I think that I don't wanna be 
only an administrator. I think being a faculty member is the best job in the world. Mm -hmm. We agree. And I really admire, Tasha, your your willingness to, to do that because I can see the value of having those conversations and having a much better sense of what it's been like in the trenches of this huge shift with COVID and taking multiple classes and transitioning them into entirely digital platforms, particularly for faculty who teach multiple classes. And so just the fact that you've walked in our shoes is amazing to know that your interaction with faculty is informed by having done it yourself. And I, I just think that it really speaks to who you are as both a teacher and an administrator that you would do that. So it's partly selfish, though, because remember, I like doing you it. You love to teach, and that's why we're here today. Yeah, it, it makes such sense that rather than being compartmentalized and isolated from that whole portion of campus life, that it kind of keeps things real and it, it keeps it keeps you aware of the challenges and the issues that are going on and in a way that you know, somebody could tell you a story, but you're experiencing it is a really different way of learning what may be happening in those trenches. I can't pretend that my teaching one graduate class to 31 students is the same as what everyone else had to do, but it, it gave me a, a taste. And, and even when it wasn't COVID, mm-hmm. I have been teaching. And I think many administrators make sure that they're making time to keep their faculty role Mm -hmm. alive to a large extent. They just figure out which are the pieces that they want to keep going. Because honestly, when I'm no longer administrator and I step into a classroom, I don't want to have forgotten how to do it. or, or what. So again, it's, it's somewhat selfish. Mm-hmm. Somewhat selfish. Teaching is kind of soul feeding uh-huh. too. It is. So I would be really hard to imagine letting it go, even if it was just for, you know, five years or yeah. something, just because it is so nourishing. Right. It is. I think it's the best and the worst of our jobs. That one student who you just couldn't get to, that's soul crushing. Uh-huh. Yeah. But the 95 others, they can... Try and make up for it, but it is the be- it is the best. You always listen to the bad, yeah. but it's it is the best and the worst of what we do, and because it's the best, we want to keep doing. But it. and as an administrator, experiencing that, you don't forget it, so you totally use that in your interactions. I would think with faculty who are struggling, and you're not in this isolated silo where you're never interacting with students or teaching. And and so it it sure seems like really great advice for someone who's thinking about moving in that direction to not think about it like a light switch where you're either on or off (laughs) teaching or administration, but looking for some blend, whether it's teaching or research with administration as a way to potentially make it life-giving, but also valuable for everyone involved. So for people who are thinking about it, and Jen might even also be able mm-hmm. to speak to this because you probably had to make similar decisions. You have to figure out how to use your time. And I think we become more efficient the longer we do this, but something is going to give, right? So it's just a choice. So whether it's a little bit of your research has to go, it is what it is. You make these choices. So what's been awkward for me is sometimes is. I'm thinking about my administrative role and how to expand it to be more useful. 
there is that tension like, well, you could, but that means you're going to have to let go of a course or Mm -hmm. two. And that's always been really hard for me because that's what I really love doing. And I can never think of like which course to not do. Like, I just, I'm like, but what, I love all of them. Like what, that would be so sad. And so I have this real struggle and I know I got to sort that out, but I can definitely see the tension and trying to figure out like how to make it all work. I haven't figured it out yet. Right. And because there's always the, in the future, when you go back to it, Mm -hmm. have you sabotaged your possibilities in what, so going back and starting up research again, Well, it gives me great hope to look at administrators who continue to stay in the mix. It sure sounds like the way to do it. And I think both of you are role models in in how to do this well. More Tasha, but she's my role model. So yeah. No, you are all my role models too. We all handle such different things and different challenges and we can't have enough role models. So speaking of teaching, what is something that you are passionate about learning right now? We used to call this like, what's your edge? Meaning what, where are you at the precipice of learning? And this can be anything really. I'll give you an example. I decided over the summer that I wanted to learn how to play ukulele. So that was, that's where I was really kind of pushing myself. And then I also, you'll appreciate this. I also decided I should learn R. It made me cry many times. (laughs) So I'm just saying I was right on my edge there with R. So what are, you, R would push me so over the edge. Let me just <laughs> say that. I love programming. I worked okay. at IBM, uh-huh. um, yeah. which was miserable because I was programming mainframe, fixing mainframe operating system code, which somehow isn't very motivating. Mm-hmm. The most recent, this, this wasn't your question, but the most recent edge that I threw myself over was learning R. Oh. Really? And I love it. Oh, oh my gosh, <laughs> But I don't have time. So I'm a hack. I also learned something called Shiny, which ties in with R so that you can make these little apps, which the only reason I learned it was for teaching. So I make these little apps that generate new sets of data every time a student uses it so they can analyze it. And then I hard code what answers could be for statistics research questions by randomly assigning variable names that they randomly select and data and so on like that. So- Oh my gosh. If I had more- yeah, it's cool. We need to do that an entire awesome. interview on that alone. That sounds so cool. It Super is. excited. I learned R also because I'm teaching my lab online and I figured we're going to have to do more like data mining than bench work. So oh. I thought, well, they're going to know some R, so I should know some R. So that's why I did it also for class. But I think the students are going to be way ahead of me. Well, they have time. They have time. So th- so even though I've started playing with R and I use it in my classes and I use Shiny to make these terribly coded but somewhat functional <laughs> apps, I would like to learn it better so that I can do more when I get out of my closet. Wow. <laughs> so cool. Well, R. And there's R- a piano. There's a piano behind me. Maybe one day I'll learn how to play next year. That's what I'm hoping is is part of We could all play together in a band. Yeah, Jen, you could do the ukulele and Tasha and I are going to learn how to play the piano. I'm there. I love it. it. Well, R for me is resistance training. And when I say bench, Jen, I mean a bench press. So... (laughs) I love it. A little bit different, but we've all had hugely eventful past years. This last year has been unlike any other. And so as we we look at wrapping up, Tasha, 
any thoughts on a highlight or an unanticipated challenge or exciting unanticipated outcome from something that happened over the past year that you'd like to share with us? Think about it. A year ago, none of us had ever heard of COVID. So I think COVID was a challenge that led to our trying to be creative around faculty and faculty support. The thing that we crafted sadly doesn't support professional faculty, but the research reboot is something that I'm proud of finally getting out the door. The other thing that does affect everyone but our tenure track faculty, it affects our professional faculty and our tenured faculty is the personal circumstances flag. And I think that's something that COVID motivated, but is not just for COVID. So that's the, for any faculty, not just our tenure track, Mm -hmm. any faculty who've had some personal circumstances that have waylaid their professional development can get this flag so that it puts a caveat around the year. So that doesn't sound like much of a highlight, but when we finally got that through, that felt like a highlight. And I I think that there are many appreciative faculty members who would say that for them, that that was a hugely stress relieving highlight. I've heard that from many people. Yeah, likewise. So thanks to COVID. I mean, I don't mean to make a challenge a positive, but COVID kind of catalyzed that and brought it more clearly to our attention. Okay. Well, Tasha, thank you so much. We are really grateful. Sorry if I'm goofy. Thank you so much for doing this. It's really it was nice so to fun. See you. So fun. You no, know, we should have talked about PTOs, but that's all right. I know. Awesome. Well, have a great day. I don't want to keep talking today. Thank you, Tasha. Talk to you soon. Bye. Take care. Bye. Dixie, that was an amazing conversation. What about that resonated with you? What did you find that you were particularly compelling when you were listening to her talk? For me, I think Tasha's commitment to teaching in addition to her administrative roles, for me, that is really powerful. I think so many people see it as an either or situation. And I think she opened the door to looking at being able to balance both of those roles, but also the importance of doing both things in order to be able to to stay connected with the people that you're serving. Yeah, absolutely. That that really made a mark for me too. And and also, you know, tied into that, her, you know, willingness to say, yeah, there's some decisions that really keep me up. And, and, you know, I want to say yes, and I just can't for X, Y, and Z reasons. Once you kind of are aware of budget constraints and all this other stuff that you have more visibility on. And I just appreciated hearing that as well, because I think we tend to sort of think about folks in administrative positions that are sort of, again, you know, academia being highly hierarchical, you know, having that sense of like really wanting to be authentic and wanting to make the right decision and make people happy, but finding yourself constantly in a position where it may not be the case that you can do that. And I I just, I appreciated hearing that from her. You know, for, for Tasha, she's such a wonderful human being that, you know, it, it delights me that she's in an administrative role, but like you just said, to, to see some of those challenges that maybe keep her up at night and, that she struggles with because I think a lot of times administrators do have to present things as yes or no, black and white, and we forget about everything that goes into what the ultimate decision is. And sometimes they don't get to share that. They just have to say, here's the decision. 
And so opening that door to, you know, kind of see peeking behind the curtain a little bit, it is a powerful message. It was wonderful. Well, thanks so much, Dixie. It was great to host with you. you. It was awesome to be with you, Jim. You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information and to provide feedback, please visit us online at texasptf.org. Thank you.